Hey, this is Matt Britt, lead pastor at New Life Church, and you're listening to our podcast. I pray you're encouraged today and filled with hope. I pray you learn more about yourself and your relationship with God. Enjoy the message. Today, though, today, I mean, we're going to look at uh, the Lamb's Mighty Army and some seals. Are y'all ready? I mean, some bowls. Okay, thank you, Miss Sally. I received that. Uh, last week, we looked at the introduction of the dragon uh, and uh, the woman who was with child, right? And we, we understood and found through Scripture in Psalm 2 that that child was actually referenced uh, it, to be Jesus, the Messiah. Praise the Lord. Uh, and the dragon is waiting to devour the Messiah right there, but then the Messiah escapes. Oh, come on. And the woman is whisked off to the wilderness for safety. And so uh, that dragon and the woman, uh, she'll be all, uh, all throughout this story. So I wanted to make sure that you understand that. The dragon and the beast formed this unholy trinity last week to chase down the woman and her son that was born uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and see that on YouTube. We'll have it on podcast as well. Uh, just a, a, an incredible understanding of this story of Revelation. Uh, we've made it all the way to chapter 14, where today we'll be introduced to the Lamb's Mighty Army. Uh, and remember also that this section of Revelation is a retelling of the first section that we covered last year. So from Revelation chapter 1 all the way up to Revelation 12, is the story in full of the, the revelation that God revealed to John. And then he retells it. It's like he backs up and gives him another angle of this story that's taken place so that he can see it with, through a different lens. And so that's where we started uh, last week, and we continue now in chapter 14. So let's jump into it today. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says this, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember last week we ended with the mark of the beast, and he says that you need to have that written on, it needed to be labeled across your forehead, right? And so this is the opposite of that, okay? If you're just joining, if this is your first time to New Life, we don't always talk about Revelation, but when we do, we get after it. Okay, let's go. Verse 2, it says, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. I, gosh, I struggle with that, y'all, because I don't know how a lot of harps could make the sound of rolling thunder. Like, there's got to be a lot of harps, right? Like, not just, that's got to be a bunch of harps. Just think, just keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, it was the sound of rolling thunder like a bunch of harpists playing. I'd go with trumpets. Anyway, uh, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, followed by the lamb, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They're without blame. Last we heard, the woman flew and fled to the wilderness for safety on, on wings like eagles, right? But what about the child? Well, here he is. Here he is. While God uh, takes his children and keeps them safe for a season, the Lamb of God stands face to face ready to fight. Come on, somebody. Jesus, in your situation right now, is not cowered down from the enemy, Okay. Though, though we know from Scripture, and we'll look at it deeper today, though we know that the enemy has given, is, is called the prince of the power of the air. He feels like he's in charge down here, although we talked about in week one that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, right? 
but he feels like he's in charge down here. And, and the Lord does not cower to the enemy in your life. Do you hear me? The Lord does not cower to the enemy in your life. So if you're facing something right now that you feel like is, is, is an attack from the devil, then you need to go to the Lord and say, Father, I, I need your help right now. I need you to stand in the gap for me just like he does. Which says, I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Last week we, we learned that we were able to correctly identify the child as Jesus using the phrase in Revelation 12 that's also found in Psalm 2. Now we're able to take that same passage in Psalm 2 and correctly identify the Lamb as that same Son, Jesus. In Psalm 2, we have the Lord placing His Son on the throne atop the holy mountain. Here we have the Lamb standing on that same holy mountain, Mount Zion. So even though we know this imagery of Jesus as the Lamb of God, a quick study back to Psalm 2 confirms it. This is Jesus, and He's gathered His elite warriors, the 144,000. Man, wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of that group, the 144,000, the elite warriors of Jesus? Well, I have good news for you today. You are a part of the 144,000. Remember, revelation is imagery, right? Revelation is, is poetic. It has a lot of imagery in it, so we can't go to num- get to numbers and go, oh, well, these numbers actually have to be absolute, right? There was only 144,000. No, there's imagery in that. 12 times 12 is 144, right? And that gross of bottle rockets that you get every year when you go to uh, for July the 4th, 12 times 12 is 144. So we have that uh, uh, placed on top of that times 1,000. So we have the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. So we have Old Testament followers of Jesus and New Testament followers of Jesus times one another gives us this image times 1,000, which is this number of, uh, of multiplication or, or, or growth. Uh, it says that the Lord added to his number daily thousands of people were being saved, this number of, of growth and perfection. And so this, this number, 144,000, represents everybody who has and will be saved. Everyone who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're a part of this great army. So not as not only is Jesus standing on Mount Zion at the end of days, but we're all standing there with him. Not in front of him, really right behind him. You got this Jesus, we're with you, right? Like we 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 will be there in force to stand against the enemy. Mm, come on. So now they're gathered with the lamb on this holy mountain. They're marked with the name of the Lord as opposed to those who surrender to the beast and taken his mark. They join the roar of heaven with their own voices, singing the song of redemption of God's people. He said it's a new song that only they would know. The only song that angels cannot sing and do not know is the song of redemption. You hear me? The only song that angels do not know and cannot sing is the song of redemption because they were not redeemed. They were, from the beginning, in redemption as God's creation. That's a whole different study, right? So the only ones who can sing this song of redemption are us. We're the only ones who can declare, look what the Lord has done. Look who he is. Look how magnificent and marvelous and holy the Lord is. So when the scripture says that they are singing a new song to the Lord, or when the scripture employs you to sing a new song to the Lord, what it's saying is don't not just come up with a new song. Although, hey, if you got a new song, talk to Carrie. But I think what he's saying, instead of come up with a new song, what he's saying is sing this new song to the Lord that is as unique to your life as who you are, as the relationship that you have with Jesus. There's this stupid trend on TikTok right now. Most of them are. But there's a stupid trend on TikTok right now where people were like, I'm going to sing you a song. that I," And they start just telling a story, but to this music that's playing in the background. They're like, my name is Matthew. 
and I pastor a church, and it's like, and most of them can't sing. It's awful. It's terrible. I don't have TikTok because I don't need to lose more brain cells, but I have seen these videos that people have sent me. It's just, it's crazy. I saw one about Molly, and she's talking about her, how she met her husband in college, and I'm like, nobody cares, Molly. Um, nobody cares. Literally, you have millions of views of people who nobody cares. The Lord says, though, without the TikTok music, sing a new song to the Lord. Sing a new song to the Lord. That is a declaration of the redemption of God in your life. Now, some of you are like, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Just get in the back of the choir. It's a big choir, right? Like, it's okay. Sing your song to the Lord. It's about expressing what God has done, and that's what this army is doing. They're expressing what God has done through this new song. It says, pure as virgins, uh, that harkens back to the policies of ancient Israel. If war was justified in the eyes of, of the Israelites, in the eyes of God, then the war was considered holy, and the troops followed rules of purity, abstaining from sex while they were faced uh, with battle. So while they're, in, while they're in war, they didn't... Brown chicken, brown cow, okay? So that's what's taking place here when he says that they're pure as virgins. Well, he's, now he's not saying... He's not giving a, a, a commentary as to their state as people, but he's saying that they are walking in a holy place before the Lord. Man, when I learned this, I, it, it, to me, it, it just deepens the cut of David and Bathsheba, right? Because the, the, the armies of Israel, it says time when, when kings go to war and they're all off at war and they're all just hanging out there together and David brings Bathsheba in and and. and and she's married, right? And then he tries to cover it up with Uriah, and he brings Uriah home, and he tries to get her, get him drunk to go home to sleep with his wife. So to break that covenant of, hey, this is a holy war, that's a whole different message. Anyway, I probably shouldn't have shared that with y'all because it has nothing to do with this. But th these people are walking in a, in a holy state, and all that that means really is that they are ready for battle. If the enemy came at you today, would you be ready for battle? Would you, would you find yourself in a place where he says, yes, Lord, I'm ready to fight? One of the things I'm learning about temptation, because I've kind of been on this journey with the Lord about temptation, one of the things I'm learning about temptation is the goal of the enemy is not for you to sin. The devil's not just trying to get you to sin. Because if he wanted you to sin, man, he, he, he could put enough in front of you to, to topple you, right? Or he thinks he can. The goal of the enemy is not for you to sin. The goal of the enemy is to weaken you to be able to stand for the Lord. We hear that word battle and we're like, Lord, I mean, who, who, who are you calling me to fight today? Because like, I mean, if you tell me to punch him, Jesus, I will, right? Like we start to get nervous about that. Like I'm not a really like a physically violent person. And yet even here what we're seeing is not a physical war but a spiritual one. And the Lord, when he calls to us, what he's calling to us to be ready for battle is to be ready in the spirit to do, to, to, to do work, to, to stand in the battle and fight. The enemy wants to tempt us so that we feel like we can't, right? God's grace is sufficient. Uh, he's talking about Paul and this thorn in the flesh. But even in sin, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even in the moment when we sin, we can come back to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and stand, back, stand there justified. And yet there's that voice inside of our head that says, you're not ready to fight. That's what the enemy wants, you to keep, wants to keep you in. He wants to keep you in that continual place of, you're not ready to fight. You're not ready to run through a troop and leap over a wall. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's an old song. Nobody even joined in. That's okay, I'm going to move on. So these guys are ready 
to fight, and it says they are following the lamb wherever he goes. Man, catch that imagery. They are following the lamb wherever he goes. These warriors are standing ready to fight, and yet they're not going off as little social justice warriors fighting their own battles. They're following the lamb and fighting his battles. Amen? They're fighting his battles. They're standing in line ready to follow the lamb and go wherever he goes. And again, this harkens back to Jesus, right? When he says, hey, what do I need to do? He's like, well, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and follow me, right? And up to that point, they hadn't seen anybody beat the cross, right? It was just like cross and that was it. You were dead forever. And so the disciples, when Jesus says, if you really want to be my follower and disciple, you got to take up your cross and follow me. They're like, oh, my gosh, he just asked us to die. Every one of us. I knew it. I knew he was crazy. I'm telling you, like, they have all of these thoughts and imageries of we're marching to death, right? This is it. And yet what Jesus is saying is not follow me to death, but what he's saying is, hey, listen, if you'll follow and die to yourself and surrender those things of your life uh, to, to, to me on the cross, then guess what? You'll have resurrection just like I've experienced resurrection. Those who have joined Jesus then are, 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 are in the fight are redeemed, ready to fight, and prepared to follow the Lamb's every move, even the one that sent him to the cross to die. As Jesus says, we must take up our cross and die to our sinful selves and follow him. Purchased by Jesus' blood and offered as a special offering. Uh, another translation says first fruits, and that's a whole other study of first fruits. But it says that we're offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They stand ready, and verse 5 says, they've told no lies or are without blame. I'm just going to read this like I put it in my notes. Lying is a sign of the devil. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Some of you need to hear that this morning because you've been listening to somebody and you're like, they don't lie all the time. They lie some of the time. And it's okay. They're, we're good. And that is the siren call of the enemy just trying to pull you away. Those who live in lies and tell lies are like the enemy living in deceit of themselves and others. Therefore, those who have been redeemed have been redeemed from death, yes, but also they've been redeemed from the lie and live in the truth. Oh, come on, somebody. You have been redeemed from the lie, and you now live in truth as followers of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus saved your soul, and one day when you die, you have that get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Like, you're going straight to heaven, okay? That's exciting, and that's wonderful, but Jesus did more for you than just give you fire insurance when you got saved. What Jesus also did was he redeemed the lie that was your life and, and created you and gave you the opportunity and ability to walk in the truth of the Lord. Now you don't have to worry about, am I following Jesus or am I doing the right thing? You just go to the Lord and say, God, you're full of all truth, so you lead me in your truth. Because we've all lived the lie. Most of it, it was about like 10th grade, right? We've all lived the lie, all right? We part our head to the side. Them Chelsea boys, they do this so that their hair will go over, right? We've all lived the lie, right? Whether your hair was meant to do that or not, right? My brother called me Bushhead. I said, thanks, I appreciate that. It's a loving term of endearment that he called me because my hair just grows and grows, like it just never stops. Like it just, just looks like this, and then it just keeps more porcupining out. So I could never do the flip thing. I just looked like, just, I probably could have grown a really cool afro. Uh, but 
I know, I, we're sorry, I, I totally lost where I was at, and then I'm back. Okay, I'm back, I'm back. We all live the lie in our lives. And Jesus came not just to redeem us for heaven, but he came to redeem the lie in our life. The enemy wants you to think that, hey, who you are and what you're doing is okay. Hey, you're good. No worries. You can have a little bit of sin in your life, right? Like it's no big deal. You got this. Hey, don't worry about it. You want some of my drink? I only spit in it twice. It's 20 ounces, man. I'm, I swirled that around. It's just a little bit of spit. You're good, right? The enemy wants you to think that that's how you can live your life. Just a little bit of impurity and I, the rest of you is good. And that's the lie. And Jesus came not just to redeem you for salvation, but he also came to redeem you from the lie. So this is the army poised to attack the dragon and the beast, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But what happens next is a declaration given from three angels. These declarations pull imagery and context from Isaiah all the way to Jeremiah. And it's a, it's a lot. Y'all, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot. It's, it's three chapters in the commentary that I'm reading. So without going too deep, the three declarations can be summed up here. First, God is going to sort everything out. That's not just a declaration for Revelation. That's a declaration for your life right now. If you feel like you're in a jumbled mess, the Scripture says, remember, God is not the author of confusion. Amen? So if you're living in confusion, then there's one of two things happening. You're letting someone else besides God write your story, right? Or you're reading the wrong story about your life. God is not the author of confusion. So number one, God's going to sort everything out. Second, Babylon, the great enemy of God's people, has fallen. That's big news. That's big news. Because it was, it, it, it's Babylon referenced in Revelation. It's already moved to Rome, who's the great oppressor of the people uh, in the New Testament. And Rome doesn't stand a chance against God either. And, and it's fill in the blank for you today. The great oppressors in your life. Listen, God is going to sort everything out, and God will destroy the enemies in your life. You believe that? God will destroy the enemies in your life. One of the greatest revelations that I've received in recent history uh, was a book by Louis Giglio called Something About the Giants. I don't remember the name of it. It says Giants Fall, I think is the name of it. And he says in the story of David and Goliath, who are you? I'm like, I know who I am. I'm David, right? I'm the runt of the litter who has to go and bring cheese sandwiches to his brothers. Like, that's me. Straight up. I'm David, right? And he says, we're not David or Goliath. We are the Israelites cowered on the hill watching as Jesus, who is David, comes to defeat the enemy in our life that we cannot fight on our own. And I was like, right? Because like we do in Scripture, sometimes we read it and make it all about ourselves. And Scripture is written for us, but it's not written to us. So it's a story that we, we glean understanding from. And the whole point of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. Every bit of it is about Jesus. Some passages you have to search a little bit more than others, but it's all about Jesus. And right there in that story, man, Jesus came to destroy the giant that I could not take down. And I just get to hoop and holler after the giant falls and run through like I did something. That's the story of redemption and grace. And that's what's, that's what's, that's what's taking place here. And that's why these angels come about. And one of the rep, one of the declarations that they give is Babylon has fallen. Great Rome has fallen. The oppressors in your life have fallen. 
God's a God of justice. Amen? He's all good, and if he's all good, then he has to be all just as well. We're getting ahead of ourselves. And third, God's judgment will be just, thorough, and complete. I told you we were getting ahead of ourselves. So God is going to sort everything out. Second, the great enemy has fallen. And third, God's judgment will be just, thorough, and complete. If you remember in our, in, in our first study of Revelation, the enemy was loosed on the earth to have his bidding, and we're like, why would God do that? Because God doesn't want the enemy to look back at him when he's finally defeated and said, I had a couple of other things I wanted to try. Give it your best shot. Go all out. What you got, Satan? What you got? Man, I love the word that Ethan shared this morning where he says, hey, listen, that pressure's building up, and that pressure is always the, the strongest right before the breakthrough. The enemy's a defeated foe. We've already read about that in Revelation several times. He's defeated. And God's judgment comes, and it is just, and it is fair, and it is thorough. He's, he says, everything you tried, Satan, failed, every bit of it. Every bit of it failed. Look at it, all the way up to the work of Jesus on the cross. Don't you think that the enemy cheered when he saw Jesus dying on the cross? Ha-ha! Got you! Right? Like he's so excited that the Messiah is dead. You were going to be the Savior of the world. What are you going to do now? Can you imagine that moment where Jesus is, takes his last breath on the cross and hell erupts in celebration? We did it. We won. The problem is they didn't realize that the, the worst tool that they have is death. And yet Jesus has a greater tool. We'll get to that. Chapter 14 ends with a harvest. Verse 14, he says, Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. This is a clear picture of the second coming of Jesus. Amen. The Lord comes down from the clouds and redeems. He harvests all those who are on the earth ready to harvest. Right? So we, we can understand this imagery right here where the angel says, now's the time. Nobody knows the time except for the Father. When the Father says, now's the time, the angel tells the Son, now's the time. And the Son says, let's go. And he gathers all of us up in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead and Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be joined together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Come on, somebody. This is what we just read about. Then it gets weird. Verse 17, it says, After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel who had power to destroy with fire came from the altar, and he shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, Swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they're ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled into the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. When your child asks you to read Bible stories to him at night, I wouldn't start with this one, right? Read me a story from Scripture. Let's not go to the, the blood that's high as a horse's bridle. Let's not start there, right? 180 miles out. Oh, my God. We go from Jesus swinging the sickle to bring in the harvest of salvation to another angel swinging the sickle for judgment. 
Here's what we have. Here's what here's what we have to come to grips with. The harvest is good. Amen. The harvest is good. You can ask any farmer, man. There is joy and celebration at harvest time. The harvest is good. When Jesus gathers all the saints up, the harvest is good. And when 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 all of the evil vile grapes are brought in from the vine and crushed in the great wine press of God's wrath, the harvest is good. Now, before you start thinking about neighbors who don't know Jesus or someone else with this imagery, the imagery of a wine press and trampling is again seen all throughout Isaiah, and it's uniquely tied to Jesus. That Christ is the one who would bring about God's wrath, and this wine press outside the city harkens back to the crucifixion site outside the city only here, this press doesn't crush those who have stood against as enemies of Jesus. Instead, it is Jesus himself who is crushed for our iniquities. So when we read about all of this wrath being poured out and God hauling all of the grapes together and dropping them into God's great wine press of wrath and it's crushed and the blood flows as high as a horse's bridle, maybe instead of thinking about sinful people that are being crushed in that way, we think about our sinless Savior who was crushed on the cross. You say, well, why does it say as high as a horse's bridle when it was just one person? Because the effects of Jesus' blood that was spilled out on the cross carries way beyond 180 miles, and there's imagery there. That that sense of water flowing out from the temple that goes into the desert and turns the desert from dry land into this lush garden. It's the same way with Jesus when his blood goes out, that it, that it covers miles and miles and miles beyond his influence and, 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 and brings with it this this beauty of not only fulfilling the wrath of God, but also proclaiming the goodness of the Lord that, hey, your sins are forgiven. Death has no sting. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. And then there's this connection made once again, once again in Jesus' salvation work on the cross for our sins and his payment for our judgments and redemption of our souls for eternity, right? You see it. He says, hey, swing the sickle and bring in the harvest. Swing the sickle again, and God's judgment is poured out. There's two harvests that take place. The one is our very soul for salvation, and the other is the judgment of God for our sins. And yet we're not the one who pay the price for that judgment Jesus did. Man. God's wrath will be poured out on the earth but it's already been justly met by Christ's work on the cross. Chapter 15 sets up all of the next few chapters. It says, Then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Seven is the number of completion. That's a whole new thing. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. A lot of people believe the sea of glass to be the prayers of the saints mixed with fire would be this intensity and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name they were all holding harps that god had given them and they were singing the song of moses the servant of god and the song of the lamb great and marvelous are your works O lord god oh my, oh my the, the almighty just and true are your ways O king of the nations remember this whole thing started with a marvelous event in the heavens Clearly, whenever this is mentioned, there's a shift or a turning point happening in this whole unfolding story of redemption. If you weren't already thinking about Exodus when he talks about 
the angels holding the plagues in bowls, right? We think about the ten plagues of Egypt, right? If you weren't already thinking about that, well, then you're definitely thinking about it when he says, and they were singing the song of Moses. So let's talk about the plagues in Egypt as we get ready to close tonight, today, tonight. See, it's not too late. Plagues are a symbol of God's wrath. God sent plagues on Egypt as a type of punishment against Pharaoh and Israel's oppressors. Remember, in order for God to be good, he also has to be just. We've already talked about that today. And this justice served in the Old Testament, now prophesied in Revelation, is a sign that our good God will not allow sin to go unpunished. How many times have you looked at the news recently or the wars recently or your own Facebook feed and what so-and-so said about you, did they? And you thought, God, how could you just let this stand? Well, the truth is, God won't. He gets the final say. It's just probably not going to be on a comment on Facebook. <laughs> Why does this say God? Oh, what's he saying? It's probably not going to be like that. It'll be much more grandiose. That's what we're seeing beginning to unfold here. God says, hey, listen, I won't let injustice stand. It's right for us to stand on the side of, of those who are being oppressed. It's right for us to stand on the side of those who are facing injustice. It's right for us to stand on the side of unborn children who have no voice. It's right for us to stand on the side of that in the church because the Lord says, yep, that injustice will not stand. But he's the one. He's the one who does the work. We're just following behind him, doing what he says. Again, that's a whole different message. So, in Egypt, God pours out the plagues as punishment, but also as a redemptive act. They're uniquely tied to the freedom of the Israelites, right? I, we got fire raining down from heaven, and the whole world becomes dark except for the land of Goshen. That's pretty cool. And animals dying, and then children dying. And we look at that, and we say, God, what's happening? And he says, it's my judgment. But it's also, it's also freedom. Freedom. I'm I'm, I'm springing loose my people from the oppressors. And remember, the whole book, this whole book is about Jesus, right? It's all about Jesus. So even then, we can see through that imagery of the plagues that Jesus would come to do that same work for us in a spiritual sense, not just in a physical sense. In other words, God's wrath is not just about punishment. It's also and equally about the freedom that comes from the destruction of the oppressors. Egypt and the Israelites, Israel and their attacking neighbors, Jesus and the cross. This theme has been seen all throughout Scripture, and we're seeing it here at the end as well. God's wrath will be poured out on the devil and his beast and his followers, but it will lead to the redemption of God's people. Amen? Verse 5 says, Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown open, wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues, came out of the temple, and they were clothed in spotless white linen with gold sashes across their chest. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out 
the seven plagues. Chapter 15 ends with a holy moment. The whole temple is filled with the glory of God, the smoke of his presence. We've left conversation about the dragon and the beast two chapters ago, but now we've come to the payoff. Now it's time for the destroyers to be destroyed. You would think that the enemy would learn his lesson. He never really wins. Sure, he may have seasons of attempts to overthrow God's plan. It might look like he has won, but he never really wins. Jesus on the cross. If I were God, I probably would have taken Jesus off the cross and lifted him up in shafts of light so that the whole world watching would know that Jesus had defeated death. Instead, God allows the enemy to kill Jesus and gloat about it for three days. His greatest weapon, death, has succeeded against the Son of God. But there was a power that even the enemy did not know, one that was more powerful than even death, and this resurrection power raised Christ from the dead. He reversed the judgment placed on the Messiah. He was condemned to die because he claimed to be the Messiah, but he was raised to life, proving that he was the Messiah. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he'll give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So then Revelation is not just the story of God's redemption or Israel's redemption. It's the story of our redemption too. Justice will be served and the devil will be defeated once and for all. We know this because the work's already been done on the cross. And we'll see it in vivid imagery as the plagues are poured out. But that's for another time. For now, for now, I think it would only be right if we join in their song of Moses. Verse 3 says, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. The Lord is just and true, and he's already won the battle. Amen? So we can sing with confidence, Lord, Lord, you, you are just and true, and you've already won the battle. We can join in with the song of the Israelites being freed from Egypt. We can join in the song of those who have been redeemed by the work of the cross. Because it's the same song of God.